What a blessing it is to be with you and see each and every one of you this morning in the house of God together. I'm excited about this message today, new series, and we wrapped up, I believe, last Sunday, four messages on the Apostles' Creed and the importance of basically staying connected to the historical vine of Christ. Um, This morning, I want to use that sort of as a platform and continue build because as you know we're entering into the resurrection season where we celebrate the the death the burial the resurrection of Jesus Christ that particular very specific period of time where Jesus suffered in an indescribable manner for us is referred to as the passion of Christ passion uh, we get the, the Greek word is pathos it has become part of some English words that we know like sympathy, P-A-T-H-Y, that last part, that suffix in the word sympathy literally means an intense feeling. And it's a feeling of emotion that has been brought by a sense of significant suffering. Jesus suffered for us. Isaiah calls him the suffering servant. And he, he suffered for a reason. It was not in vain. It was for a very specific purpose. And we know that that suffering that he took upon himself. The Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53 verse 6. 700 years before Jesus had come on the scene, Isaiah had prophesied in the seventh chapter and literally was laughed at even though he was a member of of the royal family. He was related to a cousin to Uzziah who was on the throne at the time. And so Isaiah was a unique prophet because he had some royalty. He was part of uh, the kingly lineage, not necessarily the direct line, but he was a cousin to Uzziah. And uh, so he ministered in the court of a king. His word was powerful. His word had significant influence. And when he stood to prophesy and when he wrote down the words in Isaiah 7, 14, Behold, I will give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. Now I'm quoting from King James. The the sign that was scoffed at and laughed at 700 years later, Isaiah was leaning over the balcony of heaven. And I say that metaphorically. But he's looking from whatever his place in the cosmos is, down onto the earth, and he's seeing that the prophecy that had been laughed at and scorned and scoffed was actually coming to pass in a manger in the city of David, in the city of Bethlehem. And so this morning, we begin a series that I call Passion. And I I, I think that it's significant that we look at this individual who literally has become the center point of history. All of history marched up to the point of his revealing. Now all of history is flowing out of his place of reigning. And so Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the very God of very God, the Nicene Creed says light of very light, God of very God, that one that we gather in this season as we march toward the crucifixion, as we celebrate Good Friday, as we recognize that last week of Jesus' life, in the month, this month, in the month of April, marching us up to Resurrection Sunday. We begin this series this morning on passion, and I call this very first one, Born for a Purpose. 
And though I'm going to be factual and historical about the person of Christ, specifically, I want you to see that there's some things that how he lived relates to the call of God that is on your life and how you are supposed to live out of a sense of purpose. Every one of us are designed uniquely and with a very specific reason for being here. The French call that the raison d'etre, reason to be, or a reason to exist, a reason to live. Jesus Christ was born for a purpose. We recognize that and understand that. It's the, it's the place where we personally are at times, fighting with doubts and wrestling with our own sense of identity and our own understanding of our calling where sometimes we feel like we're just floundering and are without purpose. Now, let me just say this. You are never without purpose. You are never without purpose. You might not be connected to it with an understanding of what that purpose is, which may make you at one point or another feel purposeless. But how many of you know the purpose has been set by the designer? In the very same way that this particular piece of equipment, this technology right here, this iPad, was designed for a specific reason, and the person who put this thing together, the architect, the designer, the, the creator, if you will, who put this thing together had some very specific ideas on how this thing was supposed to function so that it, when it is operating at its full capacity, there is, in a sense, glory. There is, in a sense, uh, fulfillment. Now, you are much greater than a piece of technology, And in the very same way that Christ was born for a purpose, you too were born for a purpose. Somebody say amen. Even if you don't understand what it is at this point, hear what I'm saying this morning. Listen to the word of the Lord from the book of Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, the Bible says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Everybody say that with me, please. Abba, Father. Now, literally, in the Hebrew, this phrase carries the idea of daddy. Daddy God. And, and that, literally, to some of you this morning, might be a little bit of a... Just a stretch. I just can't see God in the sense of daddy. Sometimes there are some issues that exist in our own hearts because of maybe not the best relationship with our own natural fathers. But I want you to know that you have a heavenly father who loves you so much, he desires to relate to you in the sense of not just a stern father, but a daddy who is crazy about you. Do you hear what I just said this morning? Now, if you understand that, put your hands together and give him praise. Come on. We cry, Abba. Abba, Abba, literally means daddy. It's, it's one of great affection, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Father, I thank you today for the reading of your word. I ask that you bless it. I acknowledge before you and before this people that I'm utterly dependent upon you. I cannot do anything apart from you. I ask you, Holy Spirit, you who are the spirit of truth, you who are the comforter, the the parakletos, the one who comes alongside us to teach us and to bring into remembrance all those things that Jesus has spoken to us. Move in this place today and touch our hearts and open our ears and give us understanding and perception. 
In the name of Jesus, I pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. I prepared for this series and I am struck by the concept of passion. Passion can be defined in a, a number of kinds of ways. It, it's probably basis level, and yet we can sanctify this, and it can be a godly thing when it's understood in the confines or the proper boundaries of marriage. We think of passion very similarly to the way you would some of the relationships on the afternoon soap operas. We think of an amorous relationship between a, a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. That's one definition of passion. Passion moves then from that to a very practical arena, and we start to talk about the things for which we have a great affinity. He has a passion for golf. He is very passionate about automobiles. He's a collector. She is very passionate about working with the community and working in organizations and helping the needy. She is passionate about it. We, we use that word many times to describe people who have a, a, a heart that is expressed with a, with a very focused kind of approach. Someone who has a passion is uh, someone who can, when you ask them, hey, what are your interests? They're very quick with it. They can say, hey, man, I, you know, I love to crochet. Hey, I, I, I love to play basketball. Uh, I love this. You fill in the blank. What is your passion? Are you passionate about something? I really certainly hope that you are because God has given us a life that is intended to be expressed with not just indifference or apathy. That's a great word. Use that on, pur on purpose. When you put the letter A in front of anything in the English language and in the Greek language as well, it negates it. So when we talk about apathy, which I want to tell you something, is one of, the divining, one of the defining strongholds over the delta. There is a spirit of indifference in this place. Just basically don't care. What, you know, it's, it, it is just, let's just throw it together. It really doesn't even matter. You know, there's just a spirit of mediocrity that reigns. Uh, but matter of fact, when it rains, mediocrity is seen all over this place that we're renting because we have to have a bucket brigade because the roof is not taken care of. There's just an apathy. There's a sense of not caring. Doesn't matter. How many of you know if you are motivated in your life by a sense of apathy, there's not going to be a lot get done? Yeah, you know, you, bills might not get paid. You might get a little bit hungry because you don't have enough pathos. There's not enough intense desire. And I want you to know that God operates from a sense of passion, from pathos. The heart of God, Abba Father, the, the heart of Father God is one that burns with. The Bible says the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall perform this. Zeal is that concept of just a consuming desire, and it is, it is a sister to the concept of passion. God is passionate about his glory. When we start talking about passion and our purpose, they are so amazingly connected because understanding my purpose drives the passion that is either in or not a part of my life. When I begin to recognize that I'm called for a reason and I start to live out of that reason, then I can begin to be passionate excited about, motivated by a deep and intense desire, by a feeling 
to pursue something that is going to give me a sense of fulfillment, not merely out of a sense of selfishness, merely trying to get fulfillment by myself, but I want to do something because I know God has called me to do it. I'm passionate for this church. I'm passionate about excellence. Uh, I'm passionate about taking what we have and putting our best foot forward and doing the very best we possibly can with what we have because that's a kingdom concept. If I will be faithful in little things, he says that he will cause me to be ruler over much. Saints of God, the devil's not in the details. God is in the details. And if you will pay attention to the details, are you hearing me this morning? If we'll be passionate about the little things, if we'll make righteous decisions ethically and morally and do the right thing at the right time when we're called upon to act out of the righteous nature that God has put on the inside of us, and we'll be passionate to pursue that. If we'll hunger and thirst after righteousness, the Bible says that we shall be filled, we will be fulfilled with the fruit of the passion of the Lord. Purpose always drives passion. If I'm disconnected from my purpose, then that's probably an indicator why I don't have passion in my life right now if I'm missing it. Jesus Christ operated from an intense desire. This is the the definition I want to give as we jump off of this message today, sort of use this as a springboard and a launching pad into this series. And I don't want to specifically speak to that last week of Jesus' life, which is referred to as the passion of Christ. And by the way, if you have seen it, the Mel Gibson film, would you just by a showing of hands, how many of you have seen the movie called The Passion of Christ? It is an absolute and intense expression of, I think sometimes we have a very, what is the word I'm looking for? It, it is a very, it's almost an antiseptic, scrubbed clean idea of a Christ hanging on a cross with a little tiny wound in each of his hands and a little bitty wound with a couple of drops of blood at his feet and maybe sort of a gaping wound on the side with maybe a little bit of a blood that's oozing out with water. But I want you to realize that when Jesus died for you after having endured three trials with false accusations, a, a crown of thorns planted into the skin of his head, his beard pulled from his face, having been beaten 39 times with a cat tails, a cat of nine tails, literally the skin being ripped from his back and exposing the sinews and the muscles, and literally you can see lungs from the backside being pushed down and flogged and beaten and carrying a cross through the streets. When we talk about the passion of Christ, there are indescribable words that can even begin to paint a picture that would justify I am not trying to stir you in the emotions this morning. If you've not seen the passion of Christ, I challenge you to see it. And if you can watch it and not be moved deeply on the inside of your heart, then I would say there's a hardness that you need to ask God to deal with. Because I'm tell- I sat in the theater and my shirt was wet from tears. I'm just going through this thing, seeing Jesus being beaten and beaten. And I'm sitting there going, enough, enough. It was so great. It was such intense suffering. And yet he would not give up till he got to the cross. And he hung on the cross. And with passionate love for his people. Until the moment of the finishing and the completion. When he cried out and said, Tetelestai, it is finished. It is paid in full. That's the kind 
of Savior and the kind of passion that God has given us. Five things I want to give you this morning very quickly. We realize understanding what passion is. We understand the concept that purpose drives my passion. And before I jump into this one last, one last statement, the thing that God is most passionate about is His glory. God is passionate for His glory. One of my contemporary heroes, John Piper, who pastors Bethlehem Baptist Church in Michigan, has Desiring God Ministries, probably one of the most prolific writers, powerful, powerful voice to the current generation of the body of Christ, said this, and I think this is absolutely 100% biblically substantiated. He says, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, ask the question, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the purpose of man? What's the chief end of man? And the confession answers the question and says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. How many of you really honestly, out of your personal heritage, ever thought about your denominational background all of the sum total of messages that you've heard preached about the character and the nature of God, and you've developed this kind of a, an idea in your head. And for most of us, he's kind of a Lord of the Rings Gandalf, sort of an old, old, old dude. Long white hair. And we kind of see Gandalf when we think of God. Now, maybe I messed up. Maybe all of y'all, nobody else in here does that. <laughs> but somehow, that concept got into us. I don't know where it came from. But, 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 we, but we have this, this kind of an idea, and we don't usually think of enjoying God. Anybody else in the room brave enough to say, I know what you're talking about, Pastor? We just don't think of, because it's, there was such a, an outrageous sternness that was preached when we were growing up. And there was just this idea uh, 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 of a God who is just literally poised, waiting for you to miss it so that he can bust you and and almost the idea that he enjoys doing it when he does now I, I don't know maybe i'm gonna tell you that's what religion will do to you it will mess you up come on go ahead and give him some praise this morning i'm telling you i'm sick of that mess and i fight that mess and i want to tell you the only people that jesus ever looked to is a group of people and ever threatened Jesus opened his arms with loving acceptance to everybody who approached him. No matter the brokenness, the mess, the junk, the sin in their lives, he threw his arms open to receive them. The only folks that he ever stood in opposition against were the religious people of the day, and he threatened the Pharisees. I hate religiosity that paints God in a kind of a picture that has absolutely nothing to do with the God of Scripture. God made you to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. And the only way that you can do that is to be in a relationship with him. And when you know him, you know that the caricature that religion has given us is a cartoonish, freakish view of what we've seen God to be. Come on, somebody. Say amen. amen. Five things very quickly. Who God sent himself. I've jumped ahead. I didn't mean to. Let me go back to when. When. See, sometimes the iPad fails me. It, I moved it a little far. When. 
What does this mean? When? In the fullness of time. The scripture that we read, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. In the fullness of time. History is the story of redemption. History is the story of God's intervening into the creation that he made himself. We look at the book of Genesis and we see generation. Then we see degeneration, the fall, the plunge into sin because of the disobedience of Adam. And then we see right on that spot and in that place, God made a promise to Adam's race. And he said, this one that you blame shall bear the seed of eternal life. She will carry the the blame and he will divert the shame. Because God said to Adam and Eve in that very place, he looked at the serpent and he looked at Eve and he said, the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head and the serpent will bruise his heel. And it was in that very place, Genesis 3.15, the protoevangel. it was that evangelistic promise right there in the middle of the garden when sin and disobedience had just entered in. God said, I'm sending one who will turn this mess around. Amen. There was generation, degeneration, and regeneration. God is bringing this thing back up. And ever since that promise, all throughout all of the Old Testament, the prophets were prophesying. They were declaring the seed is coming. The seed is coming. There's one who will come. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is God the Anointed One. He will come and he will deliver our people. And Moses stood up and he declared the word of the Lord that God would raise up a prophet even like unto himself that would speak the word of the Lord to the people. And all through the whole covenant, the seed is coming, the seed is coming, the seed is coming, and they're looking for him. But when he showed up, they didn't recognize him. They loved Jesus as long as he was a prophecy. I'm convinced sometimes that we've done that through church history with the moves of God. God shows up in a place and we look at it because it's not the way we expected it would happen. Let's just face it, you're sitting in a church this morning in the 21st century when a lot of folks told you that you were supposed to have actually been raptured out of here about 40 years ago and we're all still sitting around here and we've got something to do because God still has a purpose for us. I'll leave that alone. When the fullness of time had come, history is the story of redemption. God is buying back. God is redeeming. God is actively moving in all of creation. Jesus, this fulfiller of prophecy. When you look all over the Old Testament, there are 300 prophecies that speak with intense specificity about this Messiah that is coming. When you move those down to literally 1%, the top three that speak to his birth, the place he's going to be born, the tribe to which he would, his human lineage would come through. The very specific time, Daniel chapter 9, tells us and it gives us the very season that Jesus would be born into. All over the word, 300 prophecies speak to this one who's coming. And Jesus fulfilled every one of them. When you take the time just to look at the top three, let me tell you something. These three speak with such an incredible degree of specificity, specifics. Statisticians have calculated probability. And they said the only way to be able to show you how intense this is, it's, it's 1 times 10 to the 128th power. 
that anybody else besides Jesus could ever fulfill those prophecies that speak of this one who is to come that's going to turn all this mess around and break the curse of sin and death. God is that passionate about his people. You want to, you, do you have, we, we don't even have a concept of how huge the probability of 1 times 10 to the 128th power is. Let me just give you a little bit of a picture so you can understand how remote that possibility is. It's just absolutely unfathomable. The possibility of anybody else fulfilling these prophecies and being the Messiah besides Jesus Christ is the same as if we were to take the state of Texas and fill it up with silver dollars three feet deep all over the whole state. And we mark one of those silver dollars with an X, stir the whole state so that you can't find that one. And you send a blind man out and he has to go and find that one silver dollar that's marked with an X, covering the state of Texas three feet deep, and pick up that one with an X. That's the same probability that if anybody else could fulfill those prophecies besides Jesus Christ. This is not just parlor antics. I got that out of Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He is an apologetics student and a person who writes regarding that in terms of the absolutely unmistakable, unarguable evidence that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he is the Savior of the world. It's, it's inarguable. It's, it's foolishness to even take your time and try to argue that. Number one, God sent himself. Sorry, I keep doing that. Number one, in the fullness of time. When? Number two, God sent himself. He sent himself. It's not just one that he commissioned, but it was himself. It was God himself, God the Son, who came. Before the world was ever created in the councils of eternity, one God, yet expressed in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, said, Who will go? And Jesus said, I will go. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law in the fullness of time. And it literally was the fulfillment of all of the pictures and the types and the prophecies, the shadows of the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 22, Abraham goes up the mountain with his son Isaac. And his son is carrying the wood and he's got the fire and he's got the knife and he looks at his father Abraham and he says, Father, I have the fire, I have the wood, I have the knife, but where is the sacrifice? And Abraham looks at his son prophesying and he said, God will provide himself the lamb. God will provide himself. That is a prophetic play on words. We know that there was a ram literally caught in the thicket in that story right there. That's the place where God revealed himself to Abraham as Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who sees beforehand and provides. That same God, Jehovah Jireh, is also your provider. Everybody say, my provider. God will provide for you because he delights in the prosperity of his servant. He will supply all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus because you are his child. He is Abba. He is your father. Now, as you understand this this morning, we must recognize that not, it wasn't just that story. That was just a picture. That was just a prophetic symbol, a type. God was literally saying, look, I am going to myself raise the knife and slay my own son. I will provide him who will become the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. So God sent himself. The Bible says in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, listen to this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. 
to him be glory forever. Amen. Now, don't just skirt over that. I want you to look at this phrase. Everybody say, from him, through him, and to him. From him speaks of the origin, the source. It was ek, Greek word, out of. Everything is out of him because he created it all. Now, we know that Jesus is the alpha and the omega. It's all going back to him are all things. We know he's the origin. He's the alpha. He's the source. They come from him. We know that they're all going to consummate in him, to him. It's all going back to him to bring him glory because that's his purpose. God's passion is all about his glory. But you know what? The the middle one is the one where we're all involved right now, through him. He's the source from him. He's the filter through which everything is passing through him. And finally, it's all going to consummate in him. He is the end. He is the finality. He is the exclamation point upon this whole cosmic purpose called the kingdom of God. Right now, God is moving in history, actively involved in the intricate details of your life ordering your steps, causing you to meet folks, opening doors and closing others because it's all about him. It's through him. He is the filter through which all of history is passing because history is ultimately his story. History is the story of redemption. Number three, how? He was born of a woman, born under law. Two things, both of those speak of the humanity and the divinity of Jesus Christ. Many times you look at scripture, and I want you to understand a principle. When you look at the Bible, many times truth is a tension between two extremes. How is it that we, that we justify these ideas? When you read the Bible, I read portions of it, and it seems to say that, that man is responsible for everything, that I have all these choices. But yet you, you read massive portions of the word as well and you go over here and it seems to say that God orders everything and he's chosen us and he's predestined us. And so there's always argument between people who are on one side of the theological fence and those that are on the other. Those who preach that only man is responsible and those that preach only that God is sovereign. And I want to tell you this morning that both of those are true. Somebody says, which is right? I said, yes, both. I am responsible. God is sovereign. And if you leave off any of them, you're leaving out major portions of the Bible. God chose me. I still have a choice. I have a choice because he's activated the choice on the inside of me. And it's a back and forth tension between the two. Are you hearing me this morning? Was Christ divine? Was he human? Yes. He was both. He has to be both because if he's going to be a savior for me, if he's going to be a representative for me, he is the firstborn of a whole new God-man kind of race, the beginning of the new creation of God. Hallelujah. That's the reason I despise this constant sin consciousness that is promoted from the pulpits throughout the South and Southern churchianity. Constantly every Sunday just hammering down your throat how awful and no good you are and it's building into you what you used to be instead of activating on the inside of you all that Christ has called you to be. I'm not what I used to be. I'm not yet what I'm going to be. And what's the truth here? It's always a tension between two extremes. I'm caught between the now and the not yet. In Christ, it's all done. It's all already finished. It's all complete. But I'm still living in the middle of through him. 
He's filtering my life. He's, he's like, a, like a water filter. It's pulling out all of the impurities and the bad taste so that the world can get a drink of the water of life from me and not go, what is up with that? Nothing worse than being thirsty and trying to get a drink of water and it just having a metallic taste. Or maybe it's got a little too much religion in it and it's got a chlorine taste to it. Are you hearing me? God is in the process of doing a work on the inside of us. And let me tell you, he's not going to quit until he's finished. Humanity, born of a woman, born under the law. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12, the Bible says, I think the reference says 112. It should say 1112. That's my fault, not Simona's. She just copies what I send. 1 Corinthians eleven twelve. For his woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So Jesus Christ was born of a woman. He's, he's man. He is totally man. Has a human nature on the inside of him. At the same time, he is born of God, born under the law, fulfilling the righteous requirement of all that the law ever demanded. Luke chapter 1 Verses 26 through 38, I'm not going to take time to read it to you, but you know the story of the birth of Jesus. Gabriel, the angel, the messenger of God, comes and visits a young woman by the name of Mary, and he speaks to her, first of all, fear not. Why is it you think that every time an angel appears and says, fear not? Because probably it would scare you. Don't be scared. I doubt he said it in Elizabethan English. It wasn't Shakespearean. I doubt he said, fear not. He says, I'm bringing you some good news. Glad tidings of great joy. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was troubled at this saying. Yeah, I would be too if some big eight-foot-tall glowing being showed up and said, don't be scared. <laughs> ho! <laughs> And she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Yeah, I figure I would be too. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which literally means Savior. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and the kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, I love this question, how will this be since I am a virgin? No, not a man. Not possible. The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For listen to this, hear this, get this in your spirit today. This is what I want you to see and hear and understand and let it be birthed inside you. For nothing will be impossible with God. Say that with me. Nothing. Come on, Ed, come on, get some passion about it. Say nothing will be impossible. The Greek literally says, no word from God is void of power. When God speaks, that word itself carries with it not only the authority, but the power to create what he has just spoken. 
Spoken word. God said, light be, boom, light was by the decree of God. He looks at a little 15-year-old virgin who's betrothed to a man by the name of Joseph. And he says, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you and you'll conceive in your womb. And that holy thing which shall be born of you will be called the Son of the Most High God. Jesus is birthed to a woman who responds by saying, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel of the Lord departed from her. This is where we miss it. We've been born from him. We've come out of him. We know where we're headed, but it's in the, it's in the crisis of the moment. It's in the through him. It's in that filter. It's in walking through and proving the promises of God, dealing with the problems that I have, standing on the promises in the face of the problems that I have and trusting God to put a principle into place so that he will finally bring to me the provision of his promise. And I just said a whole mouthful there. When it's in that place, that crisis of faith, that I can either back up and go, this is impossible, how can this be? But if I will do what Mary said, and I will go, Lord, be it unto me according to your word. What your word says, let it be. In the face of sickness, you're trusting God for healing, and you say, by your stripes, I am healed. He sent his word and healed them, Psalm 107. In the face of lack... You look at it and you declare, my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory. Be it unto me according to your word. All of the promises of God in him are yes and by the church are amen. God has already signed his signature on a two-party check and he's waiting on you to rise up with your name. Say the amen. What does amen mean? Everybody say, so be it. Be it unto me according to your word. That's faith. That arises, And the word of the Lord tells us as it goes on in Galatians. Why? The Bible says God sent forth his son in the fullness of time. Born of a woman, born under the law. To redeem. Everybody say to redeem. To redeem those that were under the law. That's why Jesus came. He came for a purpose. He was, he, he was born to live. He lived to die. He died to conquer. And he conquered to reign. Literally. Jesus Christ came to redeem. The Greek word is exagoras, and it literally means to buy back or to reclaim. Most famous scripture that we all know, for God so loved that he gave. You see, literally, the passionate heart of God. That's, that, that's the pathos of God. That is the, 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 the zeal of the Lord that is consuming. He loves so much that he gave like Abraham was willing to give Isaac. And he promised his son, God will provide himself. 4,000 years before this one came, it was a picture of the one who would come himself and provide the lamb that would take away the sins of the world. And Jesus came to redeem, to buy back. When you redeem something, you are, you are going and paying the price for it. Jesus redeemed us from sin and from death. Finally, the last one this morning is this question, what? Because the scripture says, so that we might receive the adoption of sons. And I'm, I'm finishing this message up, about to land this plane, but I really want you to zero in and hear this. Because there's been a lot of preaching about this particular phrase that I just want to submit to you that I believe is totally wrong. I really do not believe that the Bible word adoption here has any, anything to do with the Western concept of going to an orphanage and 
basically grabbing hold of a child that does not have your DNA and then bringing that child into your family. Although I believe that's a wonderful idea, I believe it's a blessed concept, I do believe that Jesus redeems and in in that sense of adopting us, yes. But I want to tell you something. You are not a stepchild to God. You were not born from another father. If you have been born again, you are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. You don't enter the kingdom because you've been adopted to be a part of the family. You enter the kingdom because you have been born again and you are a son. His DNA is on the inside of you. Are you hearing what I'm telling you this morning? It does not make sense to tell me that I've got to be born again and then turn around and start talking to me like I'm a stepchild. Now listen, if any of you in here are adopted, thank God that you had a family that loved you so much. And, and I'm not taking away. That's a Western idea. What I'm telling you is that's not what this is saying. When it starts talking about the adoption of sons, literally, the Hebrew idea in the sense of adoption, the Greek word is weothesia, and it literally is the idea of taking a son who is your rightful heir, he's got your bloodline in him, your DNA is in him, you are his daddy, you are his father, he is your son, he's a rightful heir. But adoption occurs when you've grown that son up to the place where he's gotten enough maturity in him that he steps up and all of a sudden you go out here on the family business and Joseph Carpenter Shop becomes Joseph and Sons Incorporated. Weothesia, the adoption of sons, is the idea of being placed as a mature, full-grown son with all of the authority that the Father has. When you speak, you speak for the Father. I'm talking about Jesus now. When Jesus walked to the Jordan River and his by natural lineage, cousin John the Baptist, for the very first time, saw him in a new light and he looks and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He went down into the water with John. John looks at Jesus and said, You ought to be baptizing me. Jesus looked back at John and he said, Allow this to be so, so that all righteousness might be fulfilled. And when Jesus went down into the water and came back up in the waters of baptism, the Bible says the heavens were opened and the Father spoke with a loud voice and he said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Who can tell me how old Jesus was when that happened? He was 30. Everybody say 30. 30 30 in the Bible is the number of maturity. Who knows how old Joseph was when he became the prime minister of Egypt? 30. Who knows how old David was when he became the king of Israel? Good answer. 30 in scripture is the number of maturity. What I'm telling you is what happened to each of these men after going through the filter, being pulled through the ringer. Joseph was set on the throne in a place of authority. David came to a place of rulership. Jesus, who was always the Son of God, it was in that moment where he was placed and identified as the full-grown son. I think some lights are coming on in the room this morning. What I'm trying to tell you right now is that you are already, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, you are his child, but God is bringing you through the filter and through the ringer. And you know what? What you got to do is if if he's going to pull you through that knot hole, you just need to hang on, honey, because he's going to pull you through to the other side and he's going to reveal his glory on the inside of you. Come on. 
It's in those places where you rediscover purpose and where all the junk gets pulled off. And all the other stuff, the baggage and all the extra distractions and all this other mess seems to just fall by the wayside and I get intensely focused because I begin to realize who God has called me to be. He's called every one of us to be mature, full-grown sons so that we could rule and reign in the earth and speak with His Word and His authority. Some of you are going, you know, I just don't really know if I can hear that. Just listen to the full context of Galatians 4 as I finish this. Let's go back and read the first three verses we didn't read today. Listen. Galatians 4 verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Everybody say, until. Until. What did it say? Until the date set by his father. We're talking about not a stepchild who's been adopted into the family. We're talking about a son who's been born in the house. If Jesus is your Savior, you have been born again. The DNA of God is on the inside of you. But even as long as you're a baby, you can be a king's kid and not operate in any sense of authority. Are you hearing me? In the same way we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This whole thing is about maturity. Jesus came to redeem you, to birth you by the spirit, to make you part of his family. But not just leave you a little baby without any authority or any power. He wants to grow you up to be the man and the woman of influence in this earth, in the delta Dealing with apathy. Dealing with that junk. And guess what? Because we have an extreme form of indifference and mediocrity here, it's going to take a people who are on fire and passionate about the God that they love and that they serve. Come on, somebody. Give him praise this morning. I know I'm just a little bit over, but I want you to hear this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and you labor for that which does not satisfy? We, everyone in this room, either have already been in that place or we are in that place right now. We are trying to medicate the hole in our hearts either with a drug or an improper relationship or a substance or pursuing a career or idolizing something, anything else besides God. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Verse 3, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Verse 7 is my last one. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion. There it is right there. 
Everybody say compassion. Compassion on Tim and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Bow your heads with me this morning. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you that you've given us this amazing story in history of how you've created us. You've rescued us from the fall, from our own disobedience. You've sent your son for us in the fullness of time, Lord, to reveal how much you love us, your passionate desire for us. I ask you today, by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, for every person under the sound of my voice right now, Father, that as you move and draw and stir their hearts, Lord, you reach because you are sovereign. And God, you give us the ability to choose. We reach back to you. In the name of Jesus. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I would just like to ask you right now, if you would like to be included in this prayer that we're about to pray as we close this service, you need a fresh start. God says, let the wicked forsake his way. Let him turn from his thoughts. Seek the Lord while he is near. Incline your ear and hear, he's saying, in this message today, you were born for a purpose. Some of you sitting in this room are not living in that purpose. And you can never know that until you've been born again. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Every one of us must enter at that point. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are sinners. The Bible says while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Wages of sin is death. That's what we earn and deserve. Every one of us. Somebody says, how can a loving God send any of his creation to hell? And I will respond by saying, how can a holy God send any of us to heaven? I deserve hell. Everybody in this room deserves hell. It is just because of the mercy and the grace of God that we are a part of his family. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you'd like to be included in this prayer, would you just slip your hand up this morning? Anybody in the room? Anybody here today? Thank you, Father. Yes. Thank you, brother. Anyone else? Thank you, brother. I saw that hand. Anybody else? This morning, let me just say this. You're a believer. You've been walking with the Lord. Jesus Christ is your personal Savior. If you died right now, you know that you'd be in the presence of God. At the same time, you really sensed in this service this morning a conviction because you're just not living in that place of being fully satisfied in the Lord. You need, some, you need an injection of passion. You need, you need to be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. You need to recognize that there's a purpose on your life. Even in the struggle that you're in right now, this whole thing you're going through Every head still bowed, every eye closed. If you'd like to be included in this prayer, would you just slip your hand up? Anybody? Yes. Just several around the room. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for the men and the women in this place today and the word that has gone forth. Thank you for the anointing of the Holy Spirit that destroys yokes of bondage. Lord, that sets us free to be all that you've called us to be. I thank you, Lord, for the man who raised his hand to say, Jesus, be my Savior. I ask you to touch his heart. Lord, Make him to know the assurance of salvation as he confesses Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. Lord, we, we turn from our past. We turn to what you have called us to do. Our faith and our trust is in you and upon you. Thank you, Lord, because you are raised from the dead that you save us. We confess that and declare that in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said,